Okay, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, starting at verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you who are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I'm going to now invite Michael to come up and share with us his final talk on the Christian revolution. This time we're learning about fraternity. Well, it's great to be with you uh, again this, uh, this uh, last uh, in my series called the Christian Revolution. Uh, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, first of all, I should introduce myself. Uh, my name's Michael Jensen. I teach at Moore College, uh, just uh, next door to Sydney University. I teach theology there uh, to people who are, who are studying for the ministry, the Christian ministry, so that's what I do. Um, uh, and uh, secondly, I should remind you of what we did in the first and second week. The first week we looked at liberty. Uh, liberty, a great, the, one of the great values of our, uh, of our human aspiration, of our community, one of the things that we want, long for the most. And I said, liberty, understood Christianly, is really a freedom for other people, a freedom for love. And in the second uh, week we talked about equality, and love came up again, actually, because the basis of equality as we learn by understanding God's command to human beings to love him and to love our neighbours as ourselves, is, is love, is seeing oneself in the other. That's the basis for equality, the, the way in which to make sense of this idea of equality. Well, what about fraternity, community, human unity? Uh, well, today I'm basically going to say, if you want to sum it up in a nutshell, I want to say that really Jesus Christ is the only hope for human unity. Jesus Christ is the only hope for human unity. Well, it certainly doesn't take a political scientist or a rocket scientist, for that matter, to work out that we live in a massively divided world. You only have to watch the news, kind of, or even the project. I mean, that's if you like your news with a kind of vaguely comic touch. And you kind of get the impression that human beings aren't really good at getting on, uh, along. We're a part of a race at war with itself. And the cracks that we've seen appearing in the last 10 years are more religious and cultural than they are simply economic. They, they go pretty deep in human culture and human history. It's not just that some people have more than others, it's actually that there are different ways of viewing the world entirely. That actually sitting down and talking to people, we discover they have different ways of making sense of what we see, of, of the experience of being human. Now, one American professor, Samuel P. Huntington, now uh, departed, now, uh, and now has died, but in the, um, in the 1990s, he divided the world into, uh, well, he was analysing it, he didn't divide it, 
he was analysing the divisions in the world according to what he called nine blocks, and he used the word block without a K, blocks, kind of great big, great big kind of empires of thought, of worldview. And he was saying that these nine blocks, well, you can list them like this. You've got the Western block, the Orthodox, the Islamic, the Hindu, the Confucian, the Japanese, the Buddhist, the Latin America, and the African. I don't know where he would have put North Korea. They're kind of a sort of tense mini block, aren't they? And necessarily, as these great tectonic plates shift, you know, a little bit of geology, they rub up against one another, and when that happens, of course, you get earthquakes, don't you? You get, you get tension and friction between peoples. There's the Western view of the world with its instrumentality and its love of consumption and economics rubs up against the other types of worldview. Well, we see tensions come. And I would expect, I'm afraid, in our lifetimes, to see more conflict and tension between peoples than less. I would expect this not to end. There is no end in sight. I would expect this deep misunderstanding of each other to affect us more and more directly. As that great philosopher Bono said, <laughs> uh, hope, hope and history won't rhyme. Hope and history won't, won't rhyme. So what will ever unite humanity? What hope have we got for a united world? Is there any hope for us to set us out our tribes and our differences and our cultures and find a meaningful and lasting peace where we don't kill each other? Is there a table at which all the nations can share? Now, the ideal that this might be possible, the, the vision of a human unity is one of the noblest ever conceived. The idea that we might all live together as one family, each with the other as another self in a great big melting pot with no boundaries, with no borders, with no aspirations to, to defeat the other, united, not divided, striving for the mutual good of all and leaving aside the causes for which we kill. It's easy in one sense to, to criticise that idea as being sentimental and laugh at it, but in fact it's a noble aspiration, isn't it? However, many of the greatest utopian dreams for the brotherhood of man in recent history have resulted in chaos and megadeth. The people who dream the most in one sense are the most dangerous. If you think of someone like a Pol Pot uh, or anyone who's really taking the ideas of Marx seriously. You know, the idea that we might establish by some ideological move a unity, a brotherhood of men, it results in, in dangerous and terrible consequences, doesn't it? Now, the Olympics uh, embody one form of that dream too, that on the field of sport, humanity might put aside its weapons for just a brief couple of weeks and uh, find a temporary peace, a, a way of engaging itself in struggle without violence, in competition, without bloodshed, uh, even if it is drug-assisted. But wars do not cease because of sport. In the 1980s, uh, each Olympics, I, I remember as I was growing up, each Olympics was the cause for another sort of international crisis, from 1972 to 76 to 80 to 84. Uh, people worked out their politics using sport. In fact, in 1968, El Salvador and Honduras went to war over a soccer match. That's what happens when you have a nil-all draw, I guess. <laughs> the need for fraternity amongst human beings is urgently felt in our day. I mean, I hope you believe that. The need, the need for human beings to get on. But the millennia in which we, which we live, the third millennia, has been a millennia of war thus far, has it not? The last ten years? I mean, has there been a year without a major war? Has there been a year in which Australia itself has not, in one sense, engaged in some kind of conflict? It's good, good times if you're in the army because you've got plenty of business. And yet it seems that the, the demand for this peace is ever more cruelly crushed by the means we have at our disposal 
to kill one another. Our aspiration to fraternity and unity is being tested all the more by the blocks, by the peoples and by the tribes. You can see I've got those listed on your outline there. The blocks, we've already talked about the blocks, these great ideological, these great sort of worldviews that clash, that can't seem to be reconciled uh, on, on, the, on the face of the earth. It's not just West versus East or First World versus Third World. There are many different ways of seeing the world irreconcilable. It, it might be possible for them to tolerate one another for a time or have an alliance one with the other, but really to reconcile, really to be at peace, very, very difficult when they're so incompatible. The rise of these blocks has also led to the rise of the peoples or the nations. And I mean by this the smaller ethnic groups or identities that vie for some kind of place in the sun, a seat at the table of nations, attempting to challenge the accidents of history, the way in which borders were drawn on maps in some office in London in the 19th century. Now it resulted in, in the fracturing and the fragmentation of peoples. But these small peoples are powerless before the blocks and so must needs resort to terror in order to assert themselves. And we, we know many examples, the Kurds in Iraq, the Basques in Spain, the Chechens in Russia, and now not in Russia, as we know. And at a smaller level even, uh, beyond the tribes, beyond the peoples, I should say, are the tribes. Smaller groupings, smaller unities that emerge even within countries, even within nations, and vie for supremacy with one another. Generations pitting against generation, for example, or ghetto against ghetto, middle class against working class, uh, area of Sydney against other area of Sydney, or the way you, you dress, you associate with a particular tribe against, over and against another sort of tribe. We are losing uh, ever more the sense of community uh, together with the establishment of these different individual tribes, even amongst our nation, even in our, in our little nation here. And so at every level... The human ideal of community is under a cloud. It's no good saying, give peace a chance. The capacity to see a neighbour in every other human being seems to lie beyond us. You'd have to deny, you'd have to doubt the human spirit, the human willingness to be at peace, actually. Saying that tolerance will unite us is insipid and will only ever win a temporary peace, a cold war. Now, what I've been trying to show in this series, of course, is the biblical reading of these ideas, liberty, equality, fraternity, those great ideas stolen from the French Revolution, is more compelling than the secular alternatives. And so what have I got to say for myself this week? What has the Bible got to say, at least for it itself? What account does it give for human fraternity? Well, once again, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, and you might like to flip back to Genesis 2. I won't be engaging in a detailed analysis of those passages, but we're going to be scooting over a few passages in Genesis and coming back to Ephesians in the New Testament a little bit later. Now, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, of course, explains that human beings have a kind of unity according to the flesh. They explain, it explains, uh, it depicts very clearly that we human beings are, are united because we are one, uh, we, are, we are of the same stuff, the same substance. Eve is called Eve, because she is the mother of the living, of all the living. All human beings are this, and thus, in the Bible's terms, the children of this original couple, and then, therefore brothers and sisters. We're all kin, in other words. The, the race is a race of kin, a race, a family. But even more deeply, the first human beings share together as the children of God. And they're called by God, uh, to, well, they're made by God in his image. In his image. And the task of God lies within them all. It's not as if there is some exception to this. All human beings are called by God 
into his family, are made by God, are made together and, can, and, and, and ought to recognise their fellowship in God. They're made also to be relational. It's interesting that he doesn't make simply individuals. He makes them to be together. He makes them a, a social creature. He makes us a social creatures, creatures who are many as we are one, uh, to kind of quote that very sentimental Australian song. Uh, we are one, but we are many. That's, it's kind of true. To know and to be known, that's what human beings are for. We're, we're to, to love and to be loved. There's nothing more true to us than those two things, to know others and to be known by them, to love and to be loved. But it doesn't go well. The first set of human brothers, well, one murders the other. In Genesis chapter 4, the consequences of the curse wreak havoc on human relationships. And Cain it is who kills his brother Abel. And of course, you might remember the story, uh, Cain uh, is protected by God from vengeance uh, in a kind of great act of mercy and has to walk the earth, uh, wander around the earth because he's got the mark of Cain on him to protect him. But it's interesting that in Genesis chapter 4, it's the descendants of Cain who found the first city. It's the descendants of... What's that saying about human civilization? It's not a really positive comment, isn't it? It's saying, really, human civilization is founded after the fall and it's founded in order to protect, to, to find security. It's for protection. And you remember, uh, an ancient city, of course, is a walled city. And it's walled not to keep people in so much as to keep bandits and robbers and wild animals out. The walled city is recognition that the world is not as it should be, that the world is a broken place, the walled, the walled city. Ah, so it starts with protection, but of course, uh, after protection comes pretension. As the city grows and becomes more prosperous, uh, of course, the city starts to imagine that it is a kind of heaven on earth, a kingdom of God. And each ancient city had its own deity, its own God to whom it paid homage and with whom it identified, expressing its longings and desires, its hopes and dreams. And it's claimed that it was sort of established by one of the deities in the world. So the city starts with protection and ends with a kind of pretension, a kind of view that it is, a sort of heaven on earth, that if you come to the city, you've really achieved it. This is where you really ought to belong. Of course, Sydney has its own kind of version of that, doesn't it? Um, this beautiful place in which we live. And the ultimate mythic example of this is in Genesis chapter 11, if you want to flip forward to that uh, particular passage, the, the, the strange and wonderful tale of the Tower of Babel in Genesis, in that chapter. Now, not only this, it, it, is this a tightly woven story explaining the confusion of the tongues of men, but it's also as sharp a piece of satire as there is in the Bible. It's really trying to say, human beings, you are so pretentious in your aspirations to be like God, uh, but you don't realise how futile it is. So what you see in, 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 the, in the passage is that they start to build a tower and they, their aspiration, of course, is to build a tower that will reach to the heavens. So, why? So that they can make a name for themselves. It's a defiance of the true God, isn't it? It's the kind of saying, look, we're going to build this stairway to heaven so that we will dominate not simply earth, but heaven. And they build it with bricks. Well, in the, uh, the, ancient, uh, ancient, the experts in ancient uh, languages tell us that, in fact, uh, building stuff of bricks is ridiculous in ancient world and people would have been laughing how, how ridiculous you can't build a tower of bricks. Anyone knows if you want to build something big, you use stones. 
Um, and so what they're saying here is that this, this is a silly thing to do. In fact, the very name Babel means silly, means nonsense. What they're doing is silly. And what happens when God sees this? Well, he actually has to come out of heaven to take a closer look. It's so far away. It's such a pathetic attempt. You can see it's kind of cartoonish, this story, right? And God is very, very interesting, God's reaction. He says, look, uh, they will, look if, if they do this, nothing will be impossible for them. And as a result, he confuses their languages. At one level, we kind of think this seems very protective of God, very defensive. But we forget that when God judges human beings, he actually protects them. He's secure like he did with Cain. And so when he scatters them and he scatters their languages, he's in, in a way protecting human beings for themselves, from themselves. Because we see the results of human pride and pretension uh, always end in chaos in, in, in the Bible. God is in one sense saying, look human beings, I'll protect you from being too confident, too proud in yourselves that you can live without me, that you can actually achieve a kind of human unity without me because it's doomed to end in failure. It's going to protect them from their own, uh, their own flaw at that. Now it's as if here the final fracturing of the curse has been completed. That first human couple, they're driven apart. The first brothers, that ends in bloodshed. And now the first kind of civilization ends in, in chaos as the, the, the people building the tower are sent off across the world with their different languages. And what we see, if we can say, the punchline of Genesis 1 through to 11 is this. And this is the kind of tweetable tweet. Do I look too desperate to get tweets? <laughs> the tweetable tweet uh, from Genesis chapter 11 is this, that humankind was created for communion but is now everywhere divided. Humankind created, and we know it, don't we? We're created for unity. We're created for togetherness, for society. But is every, we are everywhere divided. That's the lesson of history, recent history. Experience. It's also what the Bible is saying in Genesis through 1 through 11. The very next chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that God is acting to rebuild human community. How does he do it? He addresses Abraham. He calls this strange no one in particular from a town called Ur, which must have been a very hard sell for real estate agents in Ur. Come and see Ur, sunny Ur, upper Ur, lower Ur. Um, and he says, look, Abraham, come with me to a chosen place and there you will be the father of a great nation. And this nation will be, in fact, a light, a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. And I will bless you. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. It's a, kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a call to, to say to Abraham, I will protect you. Put aside human pretensions and come and live with I in the, as the people that I will build in the land of Israel, as it turns out. Now, we're going to flash forward, of course, to the New Testament because Paul, in the New Testament, looks back on this time and says, you know, what was going on there was not simply the building of a new race of people by, by genetics, but in fact the establishment of a people that belong together by faith. A people that belong together by faith. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 4 and, and Romans chapter 4, easy to remember because it's chapter 4 in both. This people, this new people, the children of Abraham, would not be united by DNA, but would be united by faith in the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit. In, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As he explains in Romans chapter 5, he says, this new race will be cut from the cloth of Jesus Christ. Not of Adam now, but of Jesus Christ. 
And he does this, of course, in, in the midst of demonstrating that the gospel of Jesus Christ has not merely come to Jewish people only, but has come to Gentiles. Now, we kind of, we're familiar with, with this sort of thing. We're sort of used to it. But it's radical news. It kind of takes up most of the New Testament, trying to prove to people, to show to people, that in fact the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, mess, the whole message of Scripture, which climaxes in Jesus, has come to people of all nations. It actually applies to all. It has come through the Jews to the Gentiles and now includes the Gentiles. And so we get that passage from Ephesians chapter 2, that, those marvellous words. Um, the you know, kind of highlight of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2. You might uh, listen to that, those words again. You remember the kind of dividing wall language? He says that that's been torn down. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, talking about the non-Jews there, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. For in his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Well, here is a vision for a healing of the fractures in humanity, isn't there? Not merely a kind of war without guns or some kind of peace treaty that keeps us apart for a hundred years before we descend once more into bloodshed, but finally a true and lasting peace because there is with these people a new unity, a unity in Jesus Christ, a peace realised in a real relationship. Now this new, in Christ humanity, has its linchpin, not some common history, not some shared racial background, not some living in the same place, not some share, uh, kind of sharing property together or a land or even a language but the body of Jesus Christ himself. He calls them, this is the radical thing that people didn't kind of get, I think it was the kind of real challenge to them. He calls them brother and sister. And when he calls that person brother or sister, anyone else he also calls brother or sister must also be able to call each other brother or sister. It makes sense. The brother of my brother, who's not me, because there are three of us, is my brother, right? If Jesus is my brother, then anyone else who also calls him brother is my brother or sister. And so I have unity with them because I have unity with him. And I need to live out my unity with them because I have unity with him. That is a profound unity. Now, how does this unity work? Well, my brother, speaking of my brother, one of them, uh, some time ago he joined the army, it's almost a decade ago now, and uh, he was a pretty messy, smelly kind of guy. Before he went into the army, that is. He had a messy room. Well, in the army they don't tolerate messy rooms or, um, uh, or stench or uh, long hair, and he pretty got, he got the buzz cut. He started walking as they do, kind of, you know, that sort of funny walk that army... Anyone been in... Anyway, don't worry about that. Uh, he started walking like that, like he was on the parade ground all the time. He started having very neat trousers with creases in them. He could do, you know, his, his room was tidy. I went to see him at the passing out parade. Of course, it was impossible to pick him out because he looked the same as everyone else. And there was a unity there, wasn't there? Because the army gets unity by suppressing individuality, by having conformity, absolute conformity. Anyone who stands... It's not a place for individuals, is it? It's a place for conformity. However, as the New Testament talks about the people of God, its unit, the unity that it declares is completely different to that. 
We're united in the basic quality of our existence. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's from Ephesians 2, from Ephesians chapter 4. There is not a need then for the dissolving of cultural and personal differences because there's a unity founded on something far deeper. You don't have to wear a uniform when you come to church. You might have, you might have noticed that. Or, or uh, though the EU is kind of do wear. That's for a different reason. Okay. You, you don't have to conform culturally to be a part of the people of God in Jesus Christ. You don't even have to speak the same language. You can be vastly different as people and yet belong to the people of God. And those differences don't have to be suppressed. In fact, the way Paul talks about the unity of the Christian church, he talks about, of course, he uses that famous body metaphor. And particularly, the point of that metaphor is that the body is made up of different bits. It's a unity with a diversity, and it achieves its unity because of its differences, because of its diversity. You don't just have a body made up of hands. It would be very handy, but not much else. Um, uh, and yes, I am a dad. Um, conformity is to be found only in imitating Jesus Christ. That's where it's to be found. That's the only thing. And that takes many, many different forms. It's kind of an act that we, 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 we imitate Christ in all kinds of settings as, as we express our individuality, in fact, in unity with others. Together, the body finds a unity of purpose of living in, 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 in the way in which it tries to please God, keeping unity and peace with the other members of the body. And in the end, the unity that's discovered in Jesus points towards a profound unity with God and with others at the end of time. A book of, a book of Revelation, if you go to Revelation chapter 21, it's worth, if you've ever got stuck in the middle of Revelation, do fast forward to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and read that too. Because it opens with this marvellous vision of a bride coming out, out of heaven, beautifully dressed, for her husband. And because it's a, it's a mixed metaphor, if you don't know what that is, ask an English student and embarrass them because they mightn't know. But a mixed, there's two metaphors going on. There's bride coming out of heaven and the bride is actually a city. It's a city and the city is God's people. And this city is a walled city but the walls aren't meant to shut people out. The walls include... The walls are glorious and radiate with the glory of God himself and there's utter communion with people and God in this city. There's no need for any go-betweens in this city. This is God living with people and people living with God in open fellowship. And of course that means that people are living there with one another through God and in God. And in verse 26 of chapter 21, there's this marvellous verse which talks about the people bringing glory into it, the glory and the honour of the nations, the peoples. And I, I wonder there, I speculate there, could it be that the best parts of human cultures are in fact part of this final scene? The, it's not as if everyone is of the same nation in this last scene. The nations are there in their difference, aren't they? And could it be that the best of their cultures are brought in, the Italians with their pasta and their fashion and their art... The Chinese with their food, their amazing literature, the Iraqis with their historical treasures, the Australians eating the food that everyone else brings in. <laughs> um, the best, see, of the old human, the best of the old human fraternity, because it's not as if human beings don't produce good things when they unify. It's not as if they don't produce things that actually do look towards the end, look towards the way in which God had planned the world. It's not as if human culture is entirely disastrous and evil and full of, you know, com com completely nothing of value. 
in the end, this, the, the, the best of human unity is brought into this scene, embraced and redeemed, not shut out, but included. So Christians are then the people who pray, your kingdom come. That's our prayer, isn't it, to God? Your kingdom come. In advance of this final scene, when there will be no war, there will be peace amongst the nations. And we're in, in the meantime, we're involved in the establishment on earth of an alternative to warring human civilization, a community that lives under God, honouring him and seeking to live his way, living out in reality, in, in action, the, the deep peace and unity that we have in Jesus Christ. We live it out with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We build the city of God here on earth by building the church of Jesus Christ. And yet we also live in the cities of the world at the same time. And by building the one, we don't hope to shut out the other or abandon the other. Rather, it's our job to call the citizens of the earthly city to become citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem as well. We do hope to have a right perspective on that other kingdom, the walls outside the walls of the new Jerusalem. Within the new community, the resurrection of Jesus is made actual in the here and now, and the future of humanity is brought into reality. Now, let's, let's be honest, Christians haven't found this easy. Human unity is a very difficult thing to establish. It's going to take a work of God in the end. Especially as the church has grown in power and become a kind of worldly kingdom in itself. Some have seen this building of God's city as occurring entirely within this age and so have laboured to establish it here and now according to some vision of social justice, uh, whether that be left or right wing. There are kind of left wing versions of Christianity which hope to kind of bring heaven down to earth, like, likewise right-wing versions. If only we could get Christians into parliament. I just want good parliamentarians, by the way. It, when you're voting, don't vote just because someone's a Christian. They can be a Christian and a dud politician. They really can. Vote for the person who's the best politician. And don't vote according to your... This is a radical idea for Christians. Don't vote according to your interests. Vote according to the interests of others. Don't look at the voting packages of the parties and think, what's going to benefit me most? Look at what's going to benefit the community and especially the disadvantaged most when you come to, when you come to vote. That's just a rant, by the way, on, on, on the side. It's not in my notes. Um, I won't charge extra for that. Um, okay, but Christians have kind of wanted to kind of pursue the aims of God by kind of getting, our, getting in charge, getting our fingers on the levers of power in some way. In fact... I think that's entirely a mistake. That's a mistake because it misunderstands the nature of this new community that God's building. On the other hand, there have been those Christians who've tried to abandon the world entirely and live kind of, you know, let's up stumps and go and live in the country and build a little commune and kind of set up a little Christian, Christians-only community and live, again, kind of set up heaven on earth. But again, I think this ne neglects the fact that the Bible calls us out of the city to go back to the city and to serve it and to be part of it. So the answer lies within the middle of those two. We build the church in order to be the light to the nations, to be salt to the earth. Pretty hard to do when you're living in a commune, to be salt to the earth. Uh, not actually really easy to do either when you're trying desperately to um, hatchet your mates and become the head of your political party. We're called from the, out from the nations to be sent back to them with the gospel. Now what's this going to lead us to, this understanding of human fraternity? Well, first of all, we need to call human society to recognise its original human fraternity in Adam and Eve. Cain asked that vile question. What was his question? Do you remember? He said, am I my brother's keeper? 
And it's kind of entered the English language as a way of saying, hey, I'm not responsible for the other person, am I? You know, it might even be your brother. You know, someone will ring up. Is David there? It's my brother. And I might say, am I my brother's keeper? Meaning, what do, I, what do I have, his diary? Am I his mother? No. Actually, the answer to the question is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Because Cain should have been his brother's keeper. Cain should have kept account of Abel's life. And likewise, we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We do have responsibility to those people who do not belong to our people group, our block or our tribe. The blood of many human beings lies, still cries out from the ground and needs to be hurt. Can we see in the human race not simply a lot of they, but an us? The Bible surely teaches us to see exactly that. Our fellowship with other human beings in Adam, as the creations of God, tells us that we cannot say, not my problem. I would like to question whether excessive patriotism, which, with, of which Australians even are guilty, is in fact a desirable thing. Is it something we should be so comfortable with? Advertisers love it. And so do sports, uh, sporting occasions. Why should we buy Australian? What, what, why are we more loyal to the people here and not to those in other places? What, what difference is there between those who are close to us and those who are far off, especially in the kind of globalised economy in which we live? Why should we have that preference for the local? Um, are we aware of just how alienating it is to trumpet your allegiance to a particular country or group? That's not to say you can't. As I said, of course, in the final scene, we will be bringing our national identities to the table in that final scene in the book of Revelation. But I do remember going to church once in England during the World Cup, and I was one of the few non-English people in the congregation, and all the guys there and some of the ladies were wearing England shirts at church. And it's a profoundly alienating moment, actually. I know it's just sport, but to come to a place where our identity is about unity is supposed to be on something much deeper and a trumpet there, national identity and unity, was I think a kind of counter to the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Now, I don't want to take it too seriously, just football. Actually, you don't say that to an Englishman, they think it's much more serious. <laughs> it's not a matter of life and death, it's much more serious than that. They say, now, we need to also challenge, secondly, Visions of human fraternity that are alternatives to the ones that we know in Christ. Human civilization does an impressive imitation of being, of being eternal and of fulfilling all human needs. Sometimes we see that through kind of particular weird politicians like those running North Korea. Sometimes, though, materialism and consumerism does the same job. It says, this is it. We've arrived. We live in democratic society heaven because we have everything we need. Of course, that's entirely false. And we need to challenge that feeling of completion that people here have. We need to point out the dark heart of human civilization. We need to look only to God as the one who will shatter the, the spear and put an end to war. We should not be persuaded to think that justice and peace will embrace just because we have a lovely house in the suburbs. And lastly, in our gathered life together, Christians, we should be able to offer something far better, a reflection of that true unity we have in Jesus Christ. We should be a true family of believers who in the midst of the disconnection and friction have found connection and peace, peace with God and so peace with each other. This, uh, uh, in August, I'm actually going to the Balkans. You know the Balkans is a byword for human beings trying to kill each other? 
and I'm going, right, I'm going to the Balkans and I'm going there to a conference of, of, of Christians and they're going to come from Bulgaria, from Greece, from the former Republic, uh, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, from, I hope, from Albania. They're going to come from Croatia and Slovenia and from Serbia and from Bosnia, from all those little countries who have who've, who've butchered each other back and forth over... And because of Jesus Christ, this group of people who in human terms have nothing in common but only enmity, this group of people will be able to unite. Maybe it'll only be 100 people. But this group of people with such profound differences will be able to join together and sing the praises of Jesus Christ who brought them out of darkness into God's wonderful light. It's a remarkable testimony to the unity that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can you make that unity a, a reality in your experience too, in the communities that you inhabit? Can you make your communities more diverse communities that reflect the deep unity that people share in Jesus Christ? Will you seek out the reality of your union in Jesus Christ in life together with the other people of God and to lead the people of God in doing this? Well, we pray for God's help in doing that because it's the only way we're going to do it. So let's pray. God, we pray for uh, an extraordinary work of your Holy Spirit amongst uh, your people that they would be uh, what they are, that they would be able to realise in this world, the profound unity that they have in Jesus. That they would be able to not be rent by the divisions that so mark human civilization, but that they would be a testimony to a profound human peace and unity that's experienced in the forgiveness won by Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we, we always pray. Amen. Amen.